Welcome to the world of sound. In this episode, just use your ears and learn about sound engineering. We sit down with Eric, a professor at Curry College, teaching about sound engineering. I had the privilege to learn about sound engineering and would not be able to edit any of the podcasts I do without Eric's knowledge. Let's step into the world of sound and learn more about Eric's career and passion for sound engineering. So talk to me a little bit about your career and how long you've been working with sound. So I've been playing music since I was a kid um, and I went to school for music and pretty early on, you know, around, I don't know, age 11 or 12 or something, I got really into kind of the gear that goes along with playing guitar and stuff like that, but also the like recording end of it. I just always thought it was really exciting. I always thought it was really cool that in this day and age in even back in whatever 2002 you could make music and produce finished work in your bedroom you know um, where it, once upon a time you know if you wanted to record sounds or whatever you had to go book a ton of time in an expensive studio and ideally be pretty prepared for that but because of you know the rise of computers and computer audio and stuff like that it was really accessible to me to just kind of play around with it yeah I've kind of just been doing that ever since um when I was in college you know I think when I started I thought I wanted to maybe work with bands or something like that but because the bottom has kind of fallen out of the recording industry I kind of realized while I was in school that the way that I like to work and also just what I'm interested in um it seemed like doing audio post for visuals was a little bit more what I was looking for um because it is you know rather than having to coordinate studio time and get bands together and deal with the dynamics of other musicians and stuff um with with audio post it's a little bit more like you know you have a client and they say hey we need you to do whatever for this project i've done sound design kind of professionally but always in tandem with uh video editing and stuff which is when i finished school i just kind of i got a gig cutting video which wasn't really that different from cutting audio um so i've always kind of done the two side by side because spoiler alert audio work doesn't always pay super well or consistently so not to discourage anyone else you know it's a tough career if you're doing only audio work especially if you don't want to do live event production sound i've done a fair bit of that particularly while i was in college and didn't really love it you know it's kind of the same thing over and over Um, So post-production is a lot more exciting. It usually comes at the end of a project when people have already blown through their budget. Um, And also just, you know, with independent films and stuff, people are usually making these projects with peanuts um, for a budget. So, How did you start to learn Pro Tools? You work with movie, but you also work with Pro Tools and movie. So when did you start kind of learning Pro Tools? About two years into my four years of high school. And in the new school, the music room came with a small Pro Tools edit suite. It was wired up by the like tech services department who were not musicians or even Pro Tools users. 
Um, and so I remember kind of out of the gate, it just wasn't really user friendly. So I, I went in there with a pair of scissors one day and cut some of the cable ties and sort of, you know, rewired things so that it was much easier for myself and my fellow students to go in there and if you want to record something, you know, it was a matter of clicking a couple buttons rather than, I don't, I don't even remember off the top of my head how they had it set up, but, um, it, it was not user friendly. So that was the first time I really started working with it. In college, we used it all the time. While I was in college, I was a little bit more a fan of Logic Pro, which for making music, I think is a slightly better program for it because it's just a little more user friendly, but certainly for doing audio post for visuals, Pro Tools, just I find it to be the most flexible and the easiest to kind of switch around your workflow either at the start of a project or even mid-project if you're like, okay, I have to edit music now or I have to edit you know, footsteps or something. It's pretty flexible in that way, whereas I feel like I did a couple projects in Logic that were like video post projects. It was a little clunky, you know, because it, it really, I think, sort of thrives on working on more musical stuff, whereas doing Foley and sound effects and stuff like that don't always fit into like a grid. Um, so... Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. I also want to go back to the question um, that I thought about while you were talking about working on those concerts. Why, why weren't you a fan of working on production of concerts? So um, I've had a couple different gigs doing that. Um, I've been an AV technician. I worked as a crew member for like a local venue uh, one summer. One of the things I realized kind of early on is that at a concert, there are basically two groups of people having fun. There's the performers, uh, I, hopefully, um, and there's the audience. And everybody else is on the clock. So it, it always comes with the kind of normal stresses you would have at a job of, oh, I have to look busy, or, you know, I hope I don't screw up that task. And for me, like, you know, live music has always been a place to go to free yourself and, you know, have, have a night where you're you're not looking at a computer, you're not trying to get any work done, you're just with several thousand other people enjoying the same music. And that's an experience I like getting swept up in. Um, and once I noticed that a career in event production would sour that relationship, I, I kind of kept it in the back of my mind that like, let's avoid those situations whenever possible. I mean, occasionally stuff still comes up where I wind up having to run a PA for something. It's also a stressful situation too. When you're doing like production, working in Pro Tools or something like that, you're able to kind of go back and redo it. If you mess up right away, you could pretty much cost the whole show. Yeah, and I, I found at an early age, I didn't really like that, so. All right, so you talked about concert. You talked about that high stress level. What's the hardest part about working with sound while editing? Sound requires the passage of time for it to happen and for it to be heard. Um, so, you know, a good parallel in editing video, you can stop on a given frame. And if there's a color issue or something, you can stop on a certain frame and sit there and analyze it without having to be hitting a moving target. Whereas with sound, you have to be playing it back to hear it. Now, you can choose to select a small area of sound um, and loop the same word a thousand times over or the same phrase or whatever it might be but it can be a little bit harder because things are 
kind of constantly changing uh so so it does feel sometimes like you're kind of chasing something intangible i think it, it can be a little bit more subtle than other mediums you could have two versions of the same sound and neither one is necessarily better but they might be different from one another deciding which one is right for the project is can be a hard thing sometimes you know you have a visual and audio with radio you have to have the quality be so important mm -hmm. that you can create that story for the audience to listen to with sound of a tv it's, if you see something visually you're not going to really see it I, I completely understand that right away but with sounds i guess it depends on kind of the person's ear training right uh yes and no if your ears are kind of tuned into it then you can better analyze it and point out what's wrong but i i think on some level we all you know we're all people with ears um and i think even if we can't pinpoint what it is that's not sitting right with us on something we can recognize like this felt off if it's a movie that sounds crappy or something like that so yeah i, I think it's super important and you know there's a lot that goes into that too i mean because when you think of all the sounds that make up a, a movie or something you've got dialogue which is probably the most important thing you know what people are saying to each other but then you also have the sound of the space that people are in you know it should feel like if they walk into a warehouse if you have you know characters walking into a warehouse or something uh it should feel like a big empty space or you know a space with machinery in there or something like that if someone goes outside it should feel like that um and sound all plays a role in that and it's something that i think isn't always appreciated until someone has to do sound design for something is that the sounds that go into a film aren't necessarily realistic always sometimes for something to feel realistic it has to be a little bit over the top you know if if you think about let's say walking outside at night um depending on where you live depending on the the season it it may sound like nothing you know even if there are crickets or something they may not be that loud you may not really feel you know feel or hear those explicitly um but if you had to design sound for a scene where someone walks outside at night you may find yourself layering multiple cricket sounds on top of one another you know maybe some passing wind or, or a howling coyote or something like that um and all those kind of extra things will help to sell the idea that hey this person walked outside at night and then there's another layer to that of depending on what the character is going through the sounds may change to reflect that um saving private ryan is a like a great example of that. I mean, it's a great film anyways but that is a really good example like i think kind of towards the end when um tom hanks is kind of too close to an explosion and then it cuts to like you're sort of in his head and it's just muffled and he's seeing kind of blurry things and it just you know it's this like underwater kind of sound until everything kind of comes back in you know that makes the scene you have all this stuff happening around you explosions and all this and then suddenly because of the sound it can take you into one character's head 
and really give you a sense of what they're going through. Um, so yeah, it's super important. Sound is a lot less forgiving than certain other aspects of you know things like TV shows and movies. Um, if your colors aren't quite right in a shot or if, you know they're a little bit overexposed or whatever, I think our, our eyes are pretty willing to like overlook some of that. Um, whereas if your if your like dialogue or something sounds like it was recorded on a phone, or if there's static or if there's something weird going on sonically, uh, that's usually the thing that's gonna bring something down. And I notice that even on like YouTube, if I need to look up a tutorial for something, you know, I, let's say I'm changing a saw blade and I, I don't know where the hardware is on a certain tool or something. If I load up a video and someone sounds like they're 10 feet away from the microphone and their fridge is in the background, you know, overpowering stuff, uh, I'm going to click away, you know, and I think a lot of people do that. Um, I, I think it, it's a good way to lose people's attention if your sound is crappy. So yeah, it's, it's super important. I mean, it all, it all works together in, in the, you know, the context of a film or something, but I, I think it, it's often overlooked and underappreciated, but that's kind of the thing that will make or break something. Do you feel that sound design is like overlooked in movies more than visuals? Yeah, I, I mean, with big budget movies, obviously directors and producers understand, or at least I hope they do. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, you know, if, if you watch The Matrix or Lord of the Rings or something like that, you know, they all have very complete sonic worlds that go with them. So I, I think in terms of big budget Hollywood stuff, it's well known that it's appreciated. Um, if you look at the credits for any of those, you'll see that there's usually a team of people working on audio post. For smaller independent films, I think absolutely it gets overlooked all the time. Um, I've worked on a number of projects. It was overlooked until the project started getting shown. And then people were like, well, something's not working. <laughs> you know, something's not capturing people's attention or something like that. Um, and I, I've had to do some, you know, emergency sound design work, if, if you can call it that. You know, I had one a couple of years ago where someone, they'd hired a different sound designer beforehand. And it was someone who had a lot of experience with music, but not necessarily with audio post for visuals. And so they just, they did a terrible job on it. And so then I had to kind of come in and rescue it and bring it to a place where like you could actually hear the dialogue and you could actually kind of feel the footsteps and you know the world kind of needed to change around some of the characters and and whatever um so i think a lot of times in smaller budget you know student films or grad student films or whatever um it's not uncommon for it to be an afterthought um when it, it should you know, it, it should be thought about fairly early. I mean, that being said, you know, audio post is one of the last things to happen. Usually when a film gets made, 
color correction and audio post and like visual effects tend to happen kind of simultaneously in different locations so while you don't need to necessarily engage your audio post person before you shoot your film uh it is at good at the very least to make sure you you budget for that later um both in terms of money but also in time you know because it, it, it's the last thing you want to do is finish cutting your film three days before you're going to send it to a festival and then have to find an audio person who's willing to sacrifice their whole weekend to save your your film that you didn't really plan out well so um, i've had some of those too and it's not super fun let's go into video game and sound that's overlooked a lot mm -hmm. of how that's made and if you see look up youtube channels on that it's very interesting how they use fruit sometimes with uh fighting scenes and talk to me a little bit about the video game and then we'll get into everyday objects around the house mm -hmm. um so with video games uh, um it's a little bit outside of my area of expertise um when i was in college i had a lot of peers who were really into doing video game sound uh i'm not a gamer um unless you count like Mario Kart and the first two Tony Hawk's Pro Skaters, <laughs> um, uh, you know that that's about the extent of my video game cravings. You need sound for Mario, I'll tell you that. You do, yeah. It's it's important, and it you know the music changes as the levels get harder and and all that. Um, so yeah, I mean it, it's hugely important in video games too because a lot of times you rely on that feedback. You know, if you if you're firing a weapon or something, you need to hear something to go with that to sell it. And I, I know when I was a little little kid, I would often turn down the sound on the TV when I was playing video games and just put on music. And it's sort of a totally different experience when you do that because you don't really have any of that sonic feedback. And when you're nine, I guess that's fine. But uh, I feel like a couple years ago there was one night where I loaded up. I think Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3 <laughs> and uh it didn't really work by by turning the sound down because you just it kind of disconnects you I mean that's that's how we move through life is by listening for oh is there a car coming did the door close are my shoes sticking to the floor you know like it, we get all these little sounds to tell us what's going on so it makes sense that we'd want that in video games and stuff but yeah I, I do follow some people on Instagram that are like hardcore video game sound designers um and i know berkeley still has a pretty active video game sound design network it's like a it, or at least it was a facebook group i think at one point they were having meetings um on campus but obviously right now we get covid so i don't know what the state is of that but it, it it's a it's a big subculture you know people that that do that stuff i just i never got into it and sometimes i think i should but i, I don't know if if i missed the boat on that uh, i know it's a lot of excel spreadsheets that goes into it it's also timing too where it has to be in a certain time i'm just mm -hmm. thinking about that with like rocket league and mortal Kombat. obviously comes to mind when you think about sound design and video games it's pretty awesome that you got to check it out on youtube you look up mortal Kombat and kind of how it's sound designed it. it's really really cool my brother showed me so it's really really cool let's talk a little bit about disney of how they used everyday objects because that's so interesting and i don't think a lot of people know that 
everyday objects can be used as sound. Yeah, so um, for a lot of things that you have happen in movies, you can't necessarily recreate that safely. A good example is someone getting their face punched in in a movie. And oftentimes the sound that goes with that will have like a squish and a crack and, you know, a boom and all that. And you can't really go and do 10 takes of punching someone in the face until their nose breaks and, you know, you, you break skin and whatever that would, that would land you in jail. Um, so it's pretty common to use other stuff to recreate certain sounds. Um, a common one is like, let's say you're working on something where people are walking through the snow. Well, if you're in the Northeast, it snows maybe four or five months out of the year and not all the time. So you're forced with, okay, I can't go out and record myself walking in snow. What do I do? Um, some people will take brown paper and kind of mush that up to get that crunchy sound. Some people use cereal. Vegetables are really good for stuff like carrots and celery, you know, if you need like a cracking sound and stuff like that. So yeah, it's a pretty common practice to take stuff you find around the house. Um, I was cleaning out a box yesterday and I found a couple of like copper pipe fittings that I bought a couple years ago because I was working on a project where the apartment that the characters were in had like rattling pipes and squeaky fixtures and stuff. So I went to Lowe's and, you know, spent 10 bucks on some random small pieces of metal and then would record those like squeaking together and scraping together. And then by processing those, you can kind of turn those into something else. And I'm sure you remember this from, from class, but I have a file that I made like five or six years ago that's just me making brownies. You know, I just set up my recorder in my kitchen. I wanted to make brownies for myself anyways. And, you know, I recorded getting the pots out of the, the cabinets and cracking the eggs and opening the bag and stirring stuff up. And there's a ton of stuff in there. You know, you, you have the sound of like the wooden spoon hitting a glass bowl and the sound of the, the mushy brownie mix before it goes into the oven. Um, and that's all really useful stuff that can either be dropped into a different context and your brain will just kind of accept that they go together. Um, or you can use it to process, you know, you can process those sounds into something else, either by stretching them or pitch shifting them or distorting them or, or whatever. Another good example, just off the top of my head, is I worked on a film a couple of years ago where there's someone at a motel pushing a cart out in front of like all the doors at the motel um and the person's moving slowly and it just feels like it, it needed to be kind of squeaky you know rattly and whatever and at the time i had a friend who had a kitchen drawer that was just really squeaky and so i recorded you know three minutes of pushing that in pulling it out um without me having to go out and buy a squeaky cart or find a squeaky cart or find someone that had a squeaky cart you know i was able to kind of fake it basically that's one of the things you do you know we had watched that video with ben burt who did sound design for wally and star wars and stuff like that i think he talks about using like big pieces of sheet metal to create thunder and he's the reason i have two different slinkies on my desk um 
he attaches a contact mic to one end and then slaps it with like a drumstick or a pen or something and as the sound travels to the slinky it, it kind of gives us like sort of sound which, which then you can you know stretch out or, or do whatever to it so yeah it's a lot of fun trying to find weird stuff depending on the project you know if you can't figure out what you want to use then you just yeah you set a budget and go okay I'm, I'm limited to 15 bucks and you go to the hardware store and see what you can find you know yeah and you don't think about that i mean when you're watching a film you think did they record that outside like when i'm watching pirates of the caribbean you know as a fan now mm-hmm. obviously you're saying how the heck did they get out in the water like that during a storm so now when you go behind the scenes and you think about it like oh that makes sense and then it's so cool how they could just use everyday object you know to make sound like this mm-hmm. could this could be i don't know sound of the rain hitting puddles something like that mm-hmm. That's kind of what i thought of let's talk a little bit about the editing and audio what skills and equipment do you need to have to kind of edit audio if you're starting out or if you're trying to learn so at this point really all you need is a computer and a pair of headphones uh, you know editing on laptop speakers isn't really that great and you're probably gonna miss stuff um but yeah absolute bare bones i mean that's really all you need is some software of your choice a computer and some headphones beyond that i would say the next most important thing is some kind of audio interface what an audio interface does is it lets you take sound from a microphone or an instrument or something and run it into the computer where it gets encoded as zeros and ones um, and can be captured into your, you know, Pro Tools or Logic or what we call digital audio workstation software. Yeah, and those come in all shapes and sizes. They, you know, they can be as cheap as sixty bucks and just have one input and a couple outputs, or they could be thousands of dollars and have several dozen inputs and outputs. They're a good thing to have. It's a lot easier to be able to just plug a mic into your computer when you're doing sound design and go, oh, I need the sound of these jingling bells, and you plug a mic in, hit record, and then get back to editing, as opposed to, oh, I need the sound of these jingling bells, I'm going to go record it on my phone, and then send it to myself, and then download it, and then put it in the right folder, or, you know, doing the same thing with an external recorder. Um, Sometimes you need to, you know, if you're recording something that's far away, and it's not convenient to bring your computer, but... um, yeah, it's it's good having access into and out of the computer, and it also sounds better generally, you know, as opposed to like some USB mics or um, I don't even know if computers still have these, but some of them used to have like a microphone input or like a line input, and those never sounded that good, you know, because they're dirt cheap. The skills, I mean, you got to be patient. You, you have to. That's the hardest thing. You have to be willing to listen to the same thing over and over again um if you know if listening to the same phrase 40 times in a row is gonna wig you out then working with audio probably isn't your calling because uh, it's pretty common when you're if you're eqing something or trying to find a problem in a sound or whatever you know to just loop stuff over and over and over um one of the side effects to that is a lot of the movies that I've worked on, there are certain lines of dialogue that are just burned into my head now because 
either they needed extra attention because there was noise or something like that, um, or it just happened to be the spot that I chose to, you know, work with the EQ and all that. But yeah, you, you got to be patient and and you got to be willing to kind of keep pushing until you can't push anymore. Um, you know, if you're working on a film, typically, like when I get a film, it's it's unlistenable. Um, there may be certain scenes that are better than others, um, but oftentimes you can hear edits and clicks between edits. You can you know the room tone changes whatever so there's a difference from hey i just got this project and it's unlistenable to this is now something you can listen to but there's another step of now this is good you know once you get to a point where the edits are cleaned up you can understand all the dialogue and there's maybe consistent room tones and stuff that's a necessary step in the process, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're done. You know, there's usually another layer of, okay, now that we did dialogue and room tone and all essential stuff, now we need to go in and either build up certain sounds or add extra things to just give a better sense of something, depending on a scene. Whether that's, you know, someone's out in a city and we need more sounds of traffic and buses and things like that. A good example is anytime there's like an impact of some kind, either someone falls down the stairs or someone slams a door or someone tips something over, um, I usually find I need to go back and redo those scenes several times before it gets to a point where it really has like the power that it needs. That's a hard part of the process is putting that kind of final polish on stuff because that tends to be a little bit less obvious than hey someone slammed the door and we need a sound for the door slamming you know or we need footsteps where we can see someone walking with footsteps like those are pretty obvious sounds but there's usually another layer on top of that that you have to go with that can kind of fill stuff out so We take you through a journey of sound with Eric in learning about creating sound through music using a synthesizer. This is Pete Shoes. Enjoy. Let's talk about synthesizers. Let's talk about the world of this new technology. Because I, I really don't know a whole lot about it, but I'd like to learn a little bit more about kind of what the instrument is 
and kind of what you can do with it. Synthesizers have been around since I want to say the 40s in in some form or another. They didn't really start to get popular until the 60s. There's a whole kind of story that goes along with that about East Coast versus West Coast. Because um, on the East Coast you had companies like ARP and Moog that were sort of geared towards working musicians. And on the West Coast you had companies like Surge and Bukla, which catered more towards artists and hippies. Um, and so, you know, they just made weirder stuff that sounds a little bit more like cosmic ping pong balls, whereas the stuff they were making on the East Coast was, you know, had keyboards attached to it and was kind of set up in a very musician-focused sort of way. So, yeah, an analog modular synths became a thing in the 60s. Um, modular meaning that instead of being one unit... Um, it's made up of smaller subunits that you have to patch together. Yeah, that was hip, and then into the 70s, they found that people were using stuff kind of in the same way, so they started to make a lot of synths that were a little bit more compact and didn't require patching together. Um, and then in the 80s, when digital technology started being more of a thing, synths got even more compact and digital. Instead of having knobs and sliders and stuff, you suddenly had menus that you had to deal with. Um, and then as computers got more powerful, people started using software synthesizers, um, which are cool because they're super powerful. If you want to run three of the same kind of synth at once, you don't have to buy two more of those. You can just have multiple instances of that thing. But the downside to that is people kind of started to notice that software synths, it's not a very tactile experience. You know, you're working with it with a mouse and whatever. Um, and they don't always sound as good. Sometimes they do. That's a whole debate that, you know, we don't need to get into. Uh, but because of that, modular hardware synthesizers, they've come back around, basically. When I was a teenager, really wanted to start exploring synthesizers. Um, at the time, they hadn't made their comeback. So there wasn't really any place you could go to check them out um, unless you knew somebody. And so I got the idea that, oh, I should build my own synth. You know, I have a soldering iron. I can figure that out. Not really realizing just how much was going to go into that. And so, it, you know, it took me a couple years to actually do it because I kept realizing like, well, I can't really build something if I don't know what it's supposed to do or how I'm supposed to use it. Um, so I got into building stuff in like 2007, building some kits and some other things. I've just been doing that ever since. But the idea behind the modular synth is that you have different components of sound that you can connect together in different ways. So you have things that either generate a sound, that process a sound, or that can control some parameter of those sounds. That's And that's really all there is. I mean, there's a million different ways you could do that. So there's a lot of modules out there, a lot of ways you can connect stuff, but it really is just you're either generating a sound, you're processing a sound, or you are controlling a sound. Um, so, you know, a good example of that is like an LFO, which stands for Low Frequency Oscillator. Um, that generates a signal that goes up and down kind of slowly. If you were to patch that into the control input of an oscillator, which generates a tone, then you're going to have the LFO patched to its pitch control input, 
as the LFO oscillates, the pitch of the oscillator is going to go up and down. And so, it, you know, the LFO in that case is essentially acting as a second set of hands that is turning a knob automatically. The knob itself doesn't actually move, but you get the same effect as if you were doing that with your hand. So it, it's, um, it's super cool. It, it's, you know, it's a fun way to make new sounds. It's a fun way to make cool collections of sounds that work together. Certainly doing sound effects and stuff for films, it comes in handy. Because um, if you need to make the sound of like, I don't know, an industrial fan or something, you know, you, you can use a synth to make a, a you know, sound that kind of goes, whoop, 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 you know, and, and gives that feeling of being in a factory with a big fan. Um, so yeah, it's super fun. You know, it, it's it's not for everybody. Uh, it's it's a little bit nerdy and it's a little involved. And um, if you don't build your own synths, it's expensive. You know, one of the cool things about modular synths, it part of the fun in it is that you can generate patches that will surprise you. And one of the, you know one of the main kind of upper hands that it has over computer-based sequencing and stuff is that you can kind of set it up to probably make something cool whereas if you're using Pro Tools or Ableton or something like that that you have to give it a little bit more input to make something you know you have to program in drum notes or you have to download a loop and load it in or you have to load up a sample or whatever uh, whereas with modular synth you can if you know if you know what you're doing you can set it up so that like this will generate something that might be musically interesting um, or this is this might be musically interesting within these parameters that you set up um, and so it's a cool way to generate stuff that you maybe wouldn't have stumbled upon if you were to just sit down with a blank session in Pro Tools and say, I want to make a piece of music. That requires a lot more building from the ground up, whereas the, the modular synth can, not always, but it can generate kind of weird stuff for you. And, and so in that way, you know, it, it's a good jumping off point for making music. You may not necessarily make a whole song on the thing, but maybe you'll generate a loop that you'll then base the rest of your piece around or something like that. Um, that that's a pretty pretty common thing. Usually when I have synth jams by myself, um, I try and keep like Pro Tools running in the background to just capture whatever I'm doing um, or like Reaper or something like that. Um, I've, I've been kind of transitioning over to that out of Pro Tools, but you know, I'll have that running in the background. So then later on I can go back and say, okay, was there anything cool in there that's worth developing and exploring or editing down or whatever? Well, that goes into it. So you've done shows. Yep. What's it like creating sound using a synthesizer for a show? You know, I, th I think everyone has a little bit of a different philosophy on it. I know I've seen some people at shows where, like, they plan out their set and they have a way to store sequences or something. Um, usually I like to just kind of wing it because I think it's fun you know, to, to build up a multi-layered patch in real time with people there. Um, you know, it doesn't always work out perfectly. Um, 
you know, you, you don't always get the, <laughs> your drops don't always line up and so forth, but like that, you know, that's, that's okay. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have done shows. I haven't done one in a while. Um, I guess no one's done any shows in the last year. It's really not like DJing. Like, like you're creating your own sound. With DJing, you have a track and you're mixing the track with another track. With synths, you're creating that own sound and that own world for everybody to connect to. You are, although um, there are modules that people make where you can load in like loops and sounds and stuff so that then you can work with a loop but then manipulate it kind of with the other hardware in your setup or whatever so it's and that's what's so cool about it is there's enough stuff being made in that world that if you're someone who just only wants to work with sampled sounds but you want to have like the fun of using hardware like there are ways to do that if you just want to make sounds that sound like they're from germany in the 70s you can do that uh that that tends to be kind of my wheelhouse is the the kind of vintage european synth sounds but yeah there, there's all different ways you can attack it and you know it's a fun journey and the the only thing i find with it especially where i build all my own modules um is you you it tends to run away with you. You, know, you go, okay, I need more of this kind of module, and then you build that, and you go, well, now I don't have as many enough of you know this kind of module, and so now I got to build some of those, and it's it's this constant like just hoarding of of modules, and you know when and then in designing modules, it gets even worse because it's just like the you know you get what's called feature creeping, where you, you start out going, I'm going to build a module that just does distortion. And then somehow it turns into, it's going to have three different distortion circuits and a million different inputs, and it's going to, you know, turn red when you hit it or something. First synth I ever built was from a kit. Um, there's a company called Paya, spelled P-A-I-A. Um, they've been around since the 70s, and their stuff doesn't sound that great, but their documentation's really good. Um, so for, like, your first electronics project... You know, it's down to the letter of like, take this resistor that has these colored bands on it and put it into this spot and solder it like so. Um, and so doing that a couple times had me kind of prepared to continue on that journey, I guess. Um, it also helps my dad's into electronics and stuff. So I, I sort of grew up around soldering irons and things like that. So it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't a totally new thing. Um, but yeah, it, it kind of just stemmed from I wanted to do it. And also, like in college, when your winter break is about a month long, I didn't want to just be sitting around watching TV. Um, so that's that's initially where it started for me. It was like, this will be a fun winter project. You know, it's cold outside, and I'm going to be stuck in the house anyways. Why not solder together some synthesizers and see how that goes? Um, so yeah, that's, that's where it started and it's still going. I got one last question for you. So what do you say to the people who are interested in working in a sound career, video, working with audio, working with synthesizers, all of that, working with production of sound engineering? What do you say? Be prepared to do a lot of different things. 
um, you know, and expose yourself to different things and try and get some facility with, with different sorts of things. You know, when I started doing sound design, I really wanted to do it for animations because um, it's super fun. It's a lot more work because you don't have production sound, but it's more interesting usually because you get to be even more over the top with your creative choices. Um, but there really hasn't been a ton of work like that for me. So being open to also learning how to cut video and, you know, being willing to work on documentaries and also, you know, narrative films that maybe are slower than what I'd normally want to work on. Um, I think that's helped. The more you kind of do, the more flexible it makes you. And even on projects that I, where I didn't really like the film or something like that, or maybe the director was being a pain or, you know, they didn't have a ton of money or something, you do usually still learn something. Um, what I, what I will say about that as an addendum is don't, um, don't work for free any longer than you need to. You know, the first couple projects you take on, you'll have to do it for little to no money, and understandably so, because you're probably not good at it yet. Um, but, you know, if you put in the time to learn how to cut audio or cut video or whatever, uh, that's a valuable skill. It's a skill that people need there's a reason someone's asking you to do it so don't do it for free because there's a ton of people out there that will try to get you to do it for free um and i, I stupidly have worked on far too many films for little or no pay and usually all i got out of it was frustration because um, you're just like i'm burning up a sunday afternoon working on something and if i wanted to make cool sounds for no money like i'd just go noodle around with my synthesizer and at least that would be kind of fun you know so diversify your skills but also once you've started developing them don't give them away sound is everywhere it's all around us and we can create sound with anything i want to thank eric for taking his time to talk about his journey through sound and his passion and career in sound engineering. Hey, do you want more episodes? Well, hit that follow button and stay up to date with new episodes right here on Spotify. Really? More episodes? What the jack? On Spotify. <laughs>